Welcome to Inciting Minds, a podcast on interdisciplinary research. This series is a collection of episodes on play and playfulness across education and culture. My name is Kim Holfeld. And my name is Savannah Schulz. And today we're joined by collaboration researcher Ella Paldum to talk about her work on play, autism, and her general journey of um, how she got to the point that she is now as a researcher. The reason we invited Ella is because she has this super interesting perspective on play and collaboration. And she doesn't only think about play and collaboration and connection, but also about a very underexplored group of people that play together, and that is um, children with autism. Um, but maybe to share a bit about her background. So Ella uh, started her career in anthropology of religion and then did a variety of different research studies. So healing through prayer among Danish Christians, the decline of uh, religion in Denmark since the 13th century, and lived religion among Danish um, pagans and witches. And then she moved um, to explore the Chumash in California in trying to understand their identity as a group of people. Um, welcome, Anna, to the podcast. Thank you so much. Um, could you share a bit more about what the work with the Chumash was about and what got you started to visit them in California? Yes, well, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me on the podcast. I'm, I'm really pleased to be here. Um, and my, my PhD research is is sometimes it surprises people that I did my my PhD research on on Native Americans um, when they hear what I do now. Um, and the group of people that I worked with were a quite interesting group, uh, a quite interesting people because they their 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 culture had been almost it almost disappeared um, after California was was colonized by first by Spain and then later. Um, was um, annexed into into the United States into the United States. Um, so um, the culture almost disappeared. But then in the in the 60s, in the 1960s, a revitalization movement began, where the Indians came together to to find a way to make their indigenous tradition the traditions relevant in the contemporary California society which has changed quite radically and um and my take was on religious traditions and on rituals and on how they established uh, established ritual authority religious authority in the community today so it was a field that was quite interesting to to get into and also a field where where native americans have really uh, struggled to have their voice heard in research um throughout yeah, for many centuries, since the beginning of anthropology in, in California. Um, and now this is changing. So that was really interesting to be part of that um, research tradition and how that's changing now. And you did a lot of about storytelling with the tribes to understand the rituals, I think. Yeah, so, so indigenous tradition, many indigenous peoples have oral traditions, orally transmitted tra traditions. When many in, in Denmark, when we think about religion, we think about the Bible and we think about the Quran, perhaps the book religions, the religions that are transmitted uh, through scripture. But in most indigenous traditions, they're transmitted orally. So it's a quite different way of, of transmitting really a, tra a tradition. So storytelling is a really important part of that because that's a way of, of, of transmitting and developing um, traditions as they as they're, while they're lived, basically. Yeah. Is that also the reason why they lost so much of their culture, that, that it was not written down and captured into ways? Yes, it was not written down, but also because when, when the, the Europeans came to California, some estimates say that 90% of the population died within 50 years of, um, of being uh, colonized by, by yeah, mostly through a mission system. Uh, Catholic mis mission system, so they they the Europeans brought epidemics with them, and and these epidemics really 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 destabilized uh, indigenous society, and yeah, basically it it really uh, was difficult to maintain a tradition of an indigenous culture in a population, and then also because when you think about it, in 1850, 
there were about two to 300,000 people in California. Now there are more than 40 million, which is something that any society that, that undergoes that, that massive amount of migration is going to just change. That's really interesting, but there's also a lot of parallels, like listening to you now, to your current work on autism. So um, giving a voice to a community and working together with it. So is this also something that fascinated you when you started your kind of postdoc life and research? Yeah, there are many, there are many things that actually, I, I mean, I'm able to, to, so the study of religion is very interdisciplinary in its, in its nature, because we have historians, philosophers, psychologists, sociologists, anthropologists who come together to study different aspects of religion. And so moving over into play research and over to the interacting minds center was, um, was felt quite natural because that was also very interdisciplinary. And part of that interdisciplinarity is also to, to include, um, voice and to, to, to give voice to the people that are being studied, which is something that, you know, traditionally we, with Native Americans, for example, we think of them as the passive um, containers of knowledge that we can extract and then we can bring it into university and analyze it, analyze it and write it up and pu publish it. But that's not really how the world is, is it? Everybody that enters into a research situation brings their, their cultures and their political and social context with them. And now that I'm working with, um, with autistic children, I see that many of in the research field of autism, some of the same movement, of course, it's a very different situation since they haven't been colonized uh, and history is completely different. Um, but the point about giving voice to a community that hasn't been heard in the research on them is a parallel where we can use some of the same methodological approaches. What does Collabulan mean and what is it about? Well, it is a, it's a, it's a, project. It's both a research, but also a, develop pro a development pro project. We develop um, play-based uh, social learning environments um, together with children on the spectrum and their adults, the teachers and pedagogues and school leaders and psychologists and parents and all the different adults that are in their lives. We just made a huge jump from you lived in California working with a tribe of the Chumash um, and suddenly you became a play researcher. Um, you joined the Interacting Mind Center, which is an interdisciplinary research group at the Aarhus University, where you're still based. Um, so what made you focus on play and collaboration and kind of what's the relationship um, of those two for you? So collaboration is in a way a constant that goes back because um, when you do a, a, a religious ritual, it's all about collaboration and people have different roles and they create a, a context and a situation together. Um, and the, the jump from religion to play is in a way also interesting because religion is, is such a complex uh, concept. It's really difficult to define and everybody, most people disagree about it. And same thing you can say about play. Every play researcher has their own definition of play um, and it's really difficult to arrive at one one um, definition, it's always, it, it always depends on what you're researching when it comes to play, right? So in a way, it's just a jump from one complex concept to another complex concept that, you know, yeah, even though it's different, it's still something that we create and collaborate on whenever we, well, at least when we play with others. And um, we're talking about collaboration. Could you say a bit more what you mean by that before we kind of jump in on how that looks like in your in your own research at the moment? Yeah, so so in the work that I do now, we collaborate on many different levels. So we we try to support the children in collaborating as they play, but we also collaborate with the teachers and the pedagogues. So we collaborate around the children. And we also try to support that the teachers and the pedagogues collaborate with the children. So in a way we collaborate, we support collaboration between children, between adults and children, and around the children when adults collaborate to 
create a good learning environment for the children. And by collaboration, I simply mean doing something together. So how did the project start? Yeah, so so first let me just say that that I am not an autism expert. Um, I, I, I only know what I know about autism from this project. Um, I have colleagues in the projects who know much more about that than me. But the reason why the project um, came about was that in the field of autism in recent years or maybe over the last decade, we've seen um, a social model of autism that's growing forth. And let me just try to explain what I mean by that. So the, the, the classic understanding, understanding of autism has been has has developed because people tried to understand the diagnosis so that they could better help people that were diagnosed to 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 cope with challenges in their lives. So it's focused quite heavily on on identifying the deficits and the underlying causes for the deficit deficits. And so it's basically looking at all the things that autistics don't do. But the last 10 years there's this um, this uh, this new aim to try to understand the lived reality of living with autism and to understand the experience of of autistic people and and the sociality the social strategies that autistic people use because what we're beginning to understand is that they actually do have a sociality right and it, it sounds strange to say it out loud but for Sometimes you meet the misconception that autistic people don't have a social wish, they don't want to be friends, which is something that we're finding out now that that's just not true. They rate friendships and um, yeah, friends as, as one of the most important things to their quality of life. Um, and that is research. That is something that researchers try to focus on on, on understanding the social aspects of living with autism, living as an autistic person. Um, it's coming out of, of those efforts, the understanding. So, so we like to say that the social model is now coming in to complement the, the medical model, the classic medical model of autism. Um, and, and that change is still not very well implemented into special education. So that's something that this project is trying to, to support, that we implement the social understanding of autism better into special education. And when reading your work, um, I was really intrigued, you, you framed it as the double empathy problem. So that there used to be an autism research that we talked about people not being able to join normal people in their conversations, but now there's a shift on, 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 on empathy and rather seeing it differently, right? Definitely, yeah. So this is um, this is a concept, the double empathy uh, problem that is um, growing also in in autism research, where we instead of looking at it as a one way problem, we look at it as a two way problem of communication. So how do we accomplish communication across neurotypes, across different ways of being in the world, different ways of perceiving your environment, which really is a two way problem. Um, and by framing it as a two-way problem, we also hope that we can better support autistic children in developing social um, strategies that are meaningful from the way that they perceive the world in a situation. Um, and hopefully those strategies will be more meaningful and therefore also easier to carry with them into their lives as they grow older. How does it look like? Because now we're on a very abstract theoretical level. Um... What does it look like in practice? Very early on um, at the school, we uh, the the school leader, the school director, he said to us, "Okay, you can uh, you can stay in this room right here, and then um, and then we filled it up with the different toys, and then we started to invite small groups of children. Most often, we've had three children in there at once, and then we try to support them in playing together." Um, construction play. So they build uh, towers or bridges or they build uh, marble runs or um, they hide a figure from each other and they need to describe the figure to the other without you know, showing the figure so that they try to build the same 
figure as each other. So we try to use different different from from well known games. We try to support them in in in, in collaborating together. Um, but a very important thing is that we also what we've learned from the children is that uh, they sometimes they they need to or they prefer to play in parallel instead of playing together. And we try to support them in actually doing this in in in. In classic uh, autism uh, research on on autistic uh, play, sometimes you hear that autistic children are not able to play. They only play alone or in parallel, as though those are not social. Um, but what we see is that when they, when they actually play in parallel, often windows emerge between the parallel, uh, the play that's going on between the, the children. And, um, and when these windows occur, we like to try to support them so that the play becomes more uh, social or more collaborative um, from the way that they play together. We do have different approaches, but we always facilitate the play because for these children, these children are in a special school. So, I mean, they, they really need support. It doesn't just emerge from itself, but, but it, but, but they, but one thing that we, that we, our basic assumption is is that uh, that that learning emerges from experience, right? So it's experience-based learning. And is it correct that um, through play they experience these different uh, communication strategies? Like uh, you talked a bit about the symbolic uh, language in play, like the the, the non-verbal play um, through aesthetic or material approaches. And that those processes are like promoting or enabling some different kinds of collaboration or communication or I mentioned coping strategies earlier but I think that's one of the main main qualities from our perspective of, of play or a playful approach to 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 a learning environment is that um, it seems to open up more a broader range of communicative strategies um, mm. for the children than just the than what we're doing right now, which is direct verbal communication about, you know, we're talking about something and we explore it together through the words that we have. Yes, you are, um, you have this room in the Langer School and the uh, school on, um, that specifies on special needs here in Aarhus. And you have a classroom where you work in a group together. Um, but I'm guessing you're not just doing play-based play facilitated scenarios, but what do you do with this process? So where's the research element here rather than just an intervention? Or just as I think the wrong word here, but... Um. <laughs> yeah, so so to, so to that's something that's actually a really interesting question, right? Because how do we... We try to develop this approach with the children. At the same time, we also acknowledge that they don't necessarily like to talk too much about it with the words. So what we do is that we videotape everything that happens in the room. And from the children enter the room till they leave, we have video recordings of that. And then we uh, we use different uh, analy analytical strategies to look at the, what the children actually do and say in the learning environment as they collaborate. And, uh, and we, yeah, one of the, so, so that's one way of giving them voice through their hands and their bodies in a way, um, but also through little stories that they tell, because that's something that they really appreciate and, and, and they do a lot. They tell little anecdotes and stories that relate to what's going on in the interaction, but that's not, you know, necessarily directly about what's happening. Could you give an example maybe of like... They really like to quote popular culture, so, or even just culture. Sometimes it's even you know we have an example of two two boys, three boys actually that were playing together and they were just finishing off um, a specific phase of the game that they were playing and to sort of coordinate the actions that they were doing in this in this uh, in this specific instance. They one of them began singing and. Um, humming the Hindles Messias, Hindles Messiah, uh, the hallelujah part of that, which I guess is something that, that's a pretty well-known part of that song, right? We all know, da, 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 da. But then the other boy, he, he wanted to join in and he started 
in falsetto singing the next part of the of the hymn that's much less well known. I'm not going to try to do that right here right now <laughs> because I'm not sure that would bring pleasure. Um, <laughs> but um, but we we saw how they were able to coordinate their actions and and actually finishing the face of the game and then go, moving on to the next part by singing together um, and humming co humming this uh, this song. So that's one way that they communicate together. Um, and they're very attentive to each other when they do that, which perhaps is surprising to some people when, because, you know, we're talking about autistic children here. Mm -hmm. And um, what do you learn from the data? Yeah, so we, 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 we have different coding strategies and some of the analyses are still ongoing. So we try to, for example, look at systematically how many social initiatives do the children take in the environment and does that develop over time? Do they increase their social um, initiatives in the learning environment over time? This is an analysis that we're running right now. But we also do qualitative research or qualitative analyses. So we have this, um, this one analysis where we chose two minute, a two-minute video clip that we analyzed. I think I've watched that video clip, I don't know, more than 100 times by now. Um, to really try to understand in detail what's going on in the interaction right there. And one of the things that we, that we, from our perspective, is really interesting is how does the facilitation by an adult impact the communication that goes on between the children or the collaboration that goes on between the children? And we also briefly talked about um, the, the analytical process with the like the whole research team or uh, analytical unit um, working uh, collaboratively on understanding a, a, a certain segment of uh, of that brief video and um, and how it was um, or is uh, hard to um, describe or analyze um, certain nonverbal um, communications. Yeah, yeah. So in in this particular video clip, there was a one part of the interaction where one of the kids said something that we didn't we couldn't hear it actually and we and we didn't understand it and and at first we thought that he, we we thought that he was just saying it wasn't relevant or we because we all know that autistic children have many many of them have atypical language use we thought to ourselves that this is probably just him being autistic right um but then we brought it to a to a to a qualitative, um, to a conversation analysis uh, group at the linguistics department at Aarhus University. And they kept listening to that, uh, that specific turn in the conversation until they finally understood what was going on. And then we actually realized, because the children had been building a robot together, one of them had at first said, couldn't we build a robot? But the adult had not been looking very attentively at what they were building. She was focusing on supporting their communication. So mm. she kept asking them, what are you building? What is it that you're building? And at one point, one of the children said, a dumbo truck. Perhaps it's a dumbo truck. Because he was looking at what the other kids were building. And that was the turn that we weren't able to hear. And that was really interesting to us because it took us altogether, I don't know, two hours to find out what the boy was saying in, in this uh, instance, but his the other two children in the situation knew exactly what he was saying. Mm. And that was evident by the reply of his mate who said, well, I thought we began by agreeing that this was a robot, right? And he, he had this really peculiar phrasing which showed you that as soon as the robot idea had been launched, they all agreed that, yeah, of course, we're building a robot. So the, the turn that we thought was meaningless in the situation actually turned out to be a very meaningful um, way of negotiating or avoiding a conflict actually that was happening. And that made us, that really was interesting because that made us think, what if we as adult outsiders focus so much on supporting communication that we don't even notice communication when it's right there in front of us, but coming from a different perspective than ours? And I think it's very interesting um, in a lot of ways, um, but maybe especially um, 
you mentioned earlier that um, you collaborate both with the educators and uh, and with the, ch- the children um, on designing or planning or intervening. Um, but if there's different communication strategies or tools um, available, I, I think it would be quite interesting to hear more about how you like concretely collaborate with the educators and the children and how it differs in some way and how it's managed in a, a research team when it's not the same. Yeah, so so we try to use many of the strategies that we also use with the children actually to support the way that we collaborate mm. with the teachers and pedagogues. So we try to, to, to document the process and to make the process that happens Often when you collaborate, it's it there's a lot of abstract stuff in the room, a lot of you know that you, you don't necessarily know what it is. So we try to make that um to 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 make that visible in the environment to support the collaboration. Yeah. Um, so recently, you also collaborated with the teachers of developing a shared language. So 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 co-constructing also how you communicate about what you're seeing in the documentations. Um, and I think that the focus you had was trying to find a shared language for playful learning. And as we said earlier, there's a lot of um, agreements and disagreements on what we mean by play. So, so how did this process go of kind of collaborating on a shared understanding? It was a really interesting experience, actually, because we 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 wanted to try to to identify some indicators that you as an educator can look for in the children in the learning environment to see that they're engaged in the learning Mm -hmm. and to see that the learning is is something that that's really happening inside of them so we tried to develop these indicators together with the teachers and we we uh, we model it on um on um on a project uh, that's called the pedagogy of play um, at the that's a collaboration between the International School of Bilot and uh, um, Project Zero um, at Harvard University Graduate School of Education, and uh, and we used well they have defined indicators of playful learning at the International School of Bilot, and so we wanted to also try to understand what would these indicators look like if we if we develop them at Lange School, uh, which is a totally different context. Mm. And so we brought these indicators to the teachers and pedagogues at the school. And at first, they were really frustrated because none of the indicators that works in Bilon <laughs> worked in Aarhus. So we really tried to, to, to tear it all down and to then rebuild it. And as we went through that process, we noticed that some of the indicators remained the same, but others, for example, with autistic children, if they just manage to stay in the frustration or they manage to just stay in the environment, mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a really good indicator that they're actually engaged in what's going on there, which is something that wouldn't be enough at the International School of Bilon. Okay, and as I recall, the indicators of play for learning from the International School of Bilon is like choice, wonder, and delight, right? And um, did you land on any like uh, concrete or detailed uh, indicators uh, at Langer School, or how did it uh, end? So the three main indicators remain mostly the same, but um, but but what they added was that um, was that the Danish word trøkhed. Yeah. So they made it into a, basically into a tree, and at the roots of the tree is the word trøkhed, which means to feel safe. And uh, then the trunk of the tree is meaning, that it needs to be meaningful. So if the children feel safe and if they understand the meaning of their being in the environment, then choice, wonder, delight, um, in a Danish translation, mm-hmm. of course, um, may be observed in there. But the indicators then, what because the whole idea of the indicators is to find out what it actually concretely looks like. And those are really different. And it also sounded like earlier that um, that working with uh, the children and uh, object mediated communication and object based play was a way of um, like promoting these uh, safe spaces. Yes. So one thing that the analysis that I mentioned before with the robot and the dumper truck 
uh, led us to do was to actually fundamentally change the approach that we have with the children. So we tried to really use objects and object-mediated uh, communication with the children because mm. we we actually we, we use a quite a well-known model of, of constructionist learning um, uh, that, that looks like COPE's learning circle or learning cycle. Uh, Cope's experiential learning cycle. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and uh, and so we begin from from experience, and then we uh, support that the children reflect on this experience. So we take during the in the learning environment, we take little breaks, and we reflect with them whenever we see something that whenever we see something that that something that happens in the environment. And one of the things that we do now is that we have them tell little stories about what happens and then we build little figurines mm -hmm. um, and then we have these figurines to bring with us um, into later sessions or into other rooms so one example one example of this and this is our prize example in a way is a uh, was a boy who who he was in a group with two younger children And he was so frustrated because he had to wait for for them all the time. So he became really frustrated, and he would he would actually let us know. <laughs> he would tell the facilitator in English, "Now I'm really frustrated about you know I, I constantly feel like I have to wait." And then at one point he went over to a box of bricks and he put together a little figurine. And he came over to the to the facilitator and he said, "There now I built patience." And and. She asked him, so we're going to need a little bit more explanation here. What is this that you built? Well, sometimes I feel like I'm waiting. I'm standing on the station, waiting on the train. And it feels like it'll never come. And on the figure is a, like train tracks and um, a station and two little or three little uh, blocks that represent the children. And so by just building this frustration out, the patient's part, he was able to, to actually stay in the frustration and cope with the frustration Um, during the session, but most of the time we think about um, what we've learned from other groups of children, and we build figurines and we show the figurines and tell the stories with the children about what's going to happen, how, what, what is difficult. How do we keep a shared focus when we're collaborating, for example? How do we communicate? So we have little metaphors and little figurines that we use that represent these, and then we try to support the, the children. Um, change the figurines so that they modify them so that they fit with their stories in ways that are meaningful for them. And are these figurines staying in the classroom or are you also taking them elsewhere? Yes, both. <laughs> <laughs> both. And, and, and that's really one of the things that we like about them is that they can be brought around and they can be modified um, so that they fit in other situations as well because that is one of the things that's really difficult with autistic children is to transfer learning from one context to the next. They tend to really struggle with that. So if we're able to support them in doing that, that's yeah, just a small step. <laughs> I actually want to jump in and you, you said something really interesting earlier about frustration. And, and um, um, you mentioned earlier that frustration was um, inherent in, in, in the models that you now wrote up. It, it was like something that wasn't in the original ISB indicators, which is the International School of Film. Um, so what were the teachers capturing? Is it their own frustration, frustration with the children? Um, I, I think actually it's both. I think that the, that the frustration of the, to, they mirror each other, right? So when you're in a, when, when the children experience frustration, so do the teachers. So that's something that's that we really need to support these children in learning is how to cope with frustration and that it's actually okay to feel frustrated. Yeah. So I recently attended a meeting with you where you shared a bit about the process of setting up these indicators, which was super interesting. And you mentioned that a lot of the teachers also felt frustrated in the setting the scenario up and that you also noticed this frustration with children. And that was very interesting because rather than saying we need to reduce the amount of frustration, both you and your collaborators all voiced that it would be important to keep those spaces of frustration growing. So um, that's kind of what I was hinting at in, in the, 
in the question. Right. Yeah. And I think, I think that's, that's something that's, that it's funny, right? Because frustration can either make you break down and cry and sit in the corner and stop any process really, but it can also be the thing that drives that, that keeps you going in the process. It can also be, you know, I have this problem. I really need to solve it. And I, it's frustrating, but the frustration it was, is what drives me forward. And I think one of the concepts that we like to work with is this concept of social tinkering. And um, so in classic tinkering, um, tinkering is a concept that comes out of, of, uh, of, of maker environments and out of, we learned about it from the, the tinkering studio at San Francisco Exploratorium in San Francisco. <laughs> Which is a museum, um, right? Like it's a... Um... Yeah, it's, yeah, it's an exploratorium. Yeah, a science museum, I guess you could say. Hmm. And, and, and they set up different activities. They have this large open space where they set up different activities. For example, they have wind tubes to, to, to where the children, where learners can come in and experiment with aerodynamics. So they learn about aerodynamics by, by experimenting with it, by tinkering with it, by iterating, going back, putting different materials into the wind, wind, wind tube and, and see what happens with the different materials. And so we had this conversation with one of the, with the with 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 the leader of the tinkering studio, and he said, "Sounds like what you're doing is almost social tinkering, right?" And now, so we really try to set up activities where children are able to tinker with the social dynamics. So instead of aerodynamics, we put in social dynamics, and we we try to support that they are able to actually iterate, go back, try something out, become frustrated, try a different solution, and work around it, and find a strategy that works for them in the environment together with the children. So repeating uh, an activity is something that's really important to us. Mm. Yeah. And the parts about um, frustration as a potential driver for innovation or change or uh, maybe good things in general um, is also about the, the social tensions. Um, as uh, we talked briefly about earlier, um, and then, As I hear it, uh, about the ISB indicators, it's um, both some sort of social tension, but maybe also like dialogical tensions. And when I talk about dialogical tensions, I often think about um, either going towards uh, as in like a shared language or vocabulary, like indicators could be, or the the tensions that uh, drive it towards the other end of the spectrum, um, the individual diverse perspectives. Um, either way, I think it's. Um, Interesting to look at tensions as a, a driver of change or a, a driver of novelty, um, and also like a perspective on creative tensions that it's something that promotes uh, new ways of thinking and doing. Um, I'm not really sure where I was going. No, no, but I think you're right, and I think it's <laughs> that's a really important thing that instead of trying to remove frustration and tension exactly. as soon as yeah, possible. Yeah. Um, it's there's something to be gained from actually trying to see now we have I have my colleague who's she's really good at facilitating these children. I would in the beginning I would always laugh at her because whenever so, social tension arose between the children she would be like ah finally now there's an opportunity to learn. You could really tell that she welcomes um frustration and tension whenever it occurs, because that's an opportunity to learn something. That's an opportunity to, to go forward. But I also think that tensions in as a, a perspective on play might be interesting, um, because you mentioned that you're working with like facilitated or structured play in some way, and um, that uh, when you structure or facilitate play, it becomes something different th than play. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, I think that's a... I, I, At least I hope so. And I, I also think, I, I really think the, the whole discussion about play is really interesting because is it play? I mean, we call it play-based or playful or I don't know, perhaps it's play. To me, the tension, the fact that it's there is is in a way nice because that invites discussion and reflection. And one of the things that, that we think is so important which I'm sure that Savannah, as a reflection researcher, is really <laughs> happy to hear, <laughs> is Very that uh, so. that reflection is 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 really um, um, really important in these collaborative collaborative pro uh, processes because that when we reflect together, we also are open to changing perspectives. Mm. I think, like you said yeah. before, right? And I think so. Leaving this tense concept of play at the center 
is a is a way a nice way of doing that mm-hmm. um picking up on that i think so so for those uh listeners who maybe are not familiar there's a debate about free play as um i think going back to piaget and montessori already discussing it so um plays only there when people have agency and can direct it themselves and then there's this idea about guided play that is more and more coming into schools where it's facilitated by other people and the agency is not necessarily alone with the children or the learners in the scenario. Um, but you said something really interested both about the tension and I think, um, so from a lot of reflection research, we know that um, most reflection starts with some irritation. So do we, like all the famous reflection researchers talk about in a problem or in a surprising moment that causes reflection. So I think it's really interesting that you, you identify tension as, as the moment where children can learn and um, maybe to just bring in the voices that are actually part of your group because we haven't named them yet but um, your research group is also quite diverse in the tensions and voices that you have can you maybe um, introduce them like who else is part of Collaborland? right now it's actually a quite large group <laughs> because um, we have uh, well there's uh, my colleague Rege, uh, Rege Stensgaard who's also um who also is the person who actually facilitated uh, the play in in the robot and the dumper truck um, um, video clip? <laughs> so that was an opportunity to to explore her way of of facilitating. And then we have Stine. what's her background? Just to jump in, she's quickly. a psychologist. Yes. And then we have uh, Lina Gebauer, who's also a psychologist, who who's been part of the project uh, up until now, and Stine Strom Lundsko, who is a she has a master's in in uh, pedagogical psychology but then we also have and they re- they're really important we have right now 10 uh, co-developers as part of our, our project that are uh, pedagogues and teachers at Langer School in Aarhus and they're really important um, and then we of course we have the children <laughs> um, and I can't mention their names of course um, but if you go to our website, um, we will um, we have a list of the different co-developers and the different people who contribute to the project. So in this, it's like uh, some broad field uh, you're engaged in um, of um, play-based approaches with uh, autistic children and also some like uh, direct co-creation with both them and the educators. So what do you feel like is the, the main implications for educational research um, at the moment? I think so there are different aspects of our project that really that really uh, speaks to that question and I think one of them is that uh, we really try to have a co-creative approach with the teachers and with the school and with the pedagogues to 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 because we quite a few social interventions targeted autistic children and, and adults exist um, but to really develop something with the people who work with them every day and with them um, we're trying to 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 bring that more into this project uh, as much as we can so hopefully a model for doing research projects with educators because we really need each other we need them to ask the right questions because we only find what we ask for right and uh, and i think that they really appreciate to have new insights from research um, directly made relevant into their work. So that's a very interesting uh, way of working and very challenging as well. And then of course we hope to support that, that the social model is also better integrated into, into, uh, into special education, into social learning and special education so that autistic uh, citizens in the long run will it'll be easier for them to participate in in society because right now sometimes it's really difficult and it's not getting easier either um, because we communicate so much all the time um, and we're so interconnected all the time i'm just like yeah pondering if um if it looks feels and sounds in like different uh, or specific ways when working with autistic children what's really difficult about autistic children is that they're so different from each other so there's huge variety um, among autistic children. Um, and there are things, many autistic children are um, very sensitive to the surroundings. So they 
they tend to prefer that there aren't too much stimulus in the surroundings. Um, and that's something that we can take into account. So, for example, we had this uh, one child who couldn't stand the color purple, which is a strange detail. But mm. so we would, you know, make sure that that the child didn't need to build something purple <laughs> in the yeah, environment. Yeah. And so there are all these little, but that's also that's also what makes it so important to to collaborate with those who really know the children well, because they know these details. So we know that we we can never, you know, know in advance what the children need. We can only try to support that that the educators reflect uh, on their learning. Perhaps give them new new ways of reflecting, new input into the reflection process. We also uh, sometimes talk about it after being in after visiting Reggio Emilia in Italy. We sometimes talk about provocations. What are the provocations we can give to support? The, the reflection on the learning environment. So um, just to clarify, Reggio Emilia is a um, pedagogical preschool in kindergarten and primary school approach in Italy, in the beautiful town of Reggio Emilia um, that the Interactive Mind Center just visited. So, um, and provocations are, I think could be best described as invitations to, um, in the environment maybe even, or provocations by facilitators. So. Um, questions at the wall provocations can also be objects in the environment that invite you to play with them but just i think provocation is such an interesting language use of um, inviting people to think about the environment yes but also very uncommon if you speak english and it's uh, it's not a word that is normally positively connotated at least um, a little bit like frustration and tension <laughs> right yeah exactly yeah. um but there's also lärm i think which is um how would LAM uh, translate into um, English best? I think like loud sounds um, that, that some of the children, like the teachers actually in your project, I think in the, uh, like not only frustration, but also loud, uncomfortable sounds, which uh, I think is the best translation I can come up with right now. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's something that um, in many uh, special schools, they, they really try to have a low frustration environment and a, a very quiet environment which makes sense, right? Because it's really exhausting to be frustrated. But perhaps if we have these shorter periods during the day where the children actually are in a in a in a noisy and, you know, frustrating environment because it's really frustrating sometimes to collaborate, right? It's it's so difficult <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> sometimes it's fun, easy. Yeah. But that's that's the the whole tension between those two different uh, ways I think is what drives it. And one thing perhaps also that would be interesting to bring into the conversation about play is that uh, one of the things that we really try to do with the kids is to have uh, open-ended play processes so that instead of having some fixed end goal with the play, we really want them to take it where they, where they, where they want to go with the play or with the activity. We don't have to call it play, but with the activity, whatever they, so that they get a chance to get agency in the situation um, and take it where they want, and I think that's something that's that's really that 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 this type of learning does right, it, the open endedness. Yeah, it it sounds sounds really meaningful, um, and also like an an interesting approach towards uh, play in education. I think that uh, you also mentioned the experiential part of it. Um, I think that's both one of the the best things about play in education, and also maybe one of the most challenging things that we all in some way have um, experiences with play um, but have a hard time uh, conceptualizing it, theorizing it, um, talking about it in different terms than our own personal experiences. Yeah, yeah, and, and the fact that play is a, is a contested concept and, you know, something that we don't agree on is actually what gives us these wonderful opportunities to reflect together on what it is, right? And maybe find out that your approach is different from mine in some ways and in other ways we can they're the same right so we can really learn from each other and maybe something interesting here is since we talked so much about um, verbal communication and communication in general is that you work um, in danish in your work and so in danish um, we have two words available for play so um, where other like german that's my native language we only have game as a word and game is everything but we don't have a um, liar or spieler differentiation. So does this affect how you communicate? Like which word do you use and what would you say is the difference between those two? I would say that we have both 
because we work with play along this um, this um, scale from solo over parallel to more rule-based game interaction over to light <laughs> collaborative or collaboration, um, which is more uh, like open-ended light. Um, so so we have both in there, but we really also use the fact that we have both. So sometimes it's it's easier to collaborate, to learn how to collaborate if you isolate some of the variables that are in collaboration by adding some rules. So for example, we may we may use colored blocks or bricks and we we may say to the children, okay, so now you have all the yellow bricks, you have all the blue bricks, and I have all the red bricks, and now we need to construct a tower together. Um, but the bricks of the same color can't be on top of each other. So that's a rule, right? So that's a rule in the in the in the play. Is it then play? There's a rule, I don't know, but in the game. But it's also something that perhaps sometimes makes it easier to be in it, it cancel cancels out some of the variables of the co collaboration, which sometimes it makes it easier to focus on those that are difficult. So People have been listening to us. Um, they're really interested in your work. Um, we haven't mentioned that yet, but you also have developed, so the play-based approaches also develops tools that other people have access to. Um, where would we go to find these? Um, and we can link them in the show notes for people to have quick access to them. We're just in the process of building a large website with, um, currently we have 72, I think, 76 different play act or activities, collaboration activities that, uh, that will be on that website. Um, it'll be in Danish first, but in the spring we will also develop it uh, or translate it into English so that it'll be available to an international audience as well. And there's a lot of information about the project in that website, but for now you can find our project, a temporary project website on the Interacting Minds Center's homepage. One last question, and I think that uh, I'm at least dying to know. Um, so looking at your as an academic background and journey, um, do you see yourself as an education researcher, collaboration researcher, a play researcher, uh, an autism researcher, a religious researcher, or something in between? That's a good question. Um, I I would say that I, it's, I primarily look at myself as a collaboration researcher. Um, but of course, I, I try to look at all the different fields mm. fields that you just uh, mentioned. Um, I'm also still working in the study of religion, so <laughs> sometimes, <laughs> um, yeah. But I think so. I think my main what what I really like about research is to translate um, complex and difficult concepts into something that we can observe and work with in real life with our hands preferably with children yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. thank you so much and we'll link all information that we talked about today in the show notes so people can dig in and follow up and uh, yeah yes thank you for coming thank you so much for having me this podcast is edited and produced by Kirsi Tilk Anno Quentin Vermier and Savannah Scholz music by Simon Karg the podcast is funded by the Interacting Mind Center Seed Funding Grant. Visit the Interacting Mind Center website to gain access to show notes and further information at interactingminds.au.dk.